everyone. Welcome to episode 194 of The Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we know there's a lot going on in the world right now, and we wanted to start this episode off with a poem. This poem is called Only Love, and it was written by James Cruz, and it starts with a line from Sharon Salzberg. Only love is big enough to hold all the pain of this world. Sharon Salzberg. And so I imagine the entire earth as one beating heart held in the space of this universe inside a larger body we can't fathom, filling with enough love to lead each of us out of the cave of our personal pain and into the light, enough love to lead all humans as one out of collective fear, rage, and hate into a place of peace that is found only within our own hearts beating in sync with the pulse of this planet we were born to inhabit, despite the daily storms which overtake us and make us forget we are the lifeblood pumped into these veins, every particle of love we generate running into rivers, lakes, and creeks, evaporating into the air we breathe, give back, and breathe again. Thank you, James Cruz. Beautiful. Yeah. We also just want to thank all of you for being listeners of our podcast. We've really loved doing this for the last seven years, and we want to thank our bookshop people who purchase their books through that, our affiliate link, and our patrons. We just have a lot of thanks for all of you. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Here we go. Chris, what are you currently reading? Well, I am still currently reading uh, Paradiso by Dante. I also started The Art of Libromancy by Josh Cook. That is the one that I was supposed to be doing a buddy read with John Valeri, our friend who does central booking over on YouTube. And we have a track record of not doing very well with our buddy reads. (laughs) Um, But we have talked about this a little bit. We're both a few chapters in, and I'm enjoying it. A lot of it comes from his blog posts that he's done So they're pretty small chapters. They deal with different subjects, all revolving around bookstores and being a bookseller. So you can pick it up and read one here and there, which is what I'm doing. It's also for writers as well. If you're a new writer trying to figure out bookstores and how they work, that could be a good thing for you to check out. Yeah. I had to laugh, Chris, today because I was in a new neighborhood I'd never been in, and I passed a coffee shop that was called the purgatory. (laughs) So of course, I thought of Dante. It's awesome. Love that. (laughs) I'm reading Family Lore by Elizabeth Acevedo. This is her first novel for adults. She won the National Book Award for her young adult novel Poet X. So she's been on my radar for a while. She's also had poetry chapbooks and three YA novels total. But this is the story of four sisters Floor is the second from the oldest, and she has the ability to be able to determine to the day when someone's going to die. So the story starts out six weeks before her own living wake that she's putting on that she wants everyone to attend. I started reading it as an e-arc and had a really hard time because it has a list of characters in the front that I wanted to keep referring back to. So I went to the library and got a hard copy, and I'm looking forward to continuing reading it. It's really sweet so far. Very cool. Well, the other book I'm reading, I just started last night. It was the perfect book mail to receive on Halloween. Today's November 1st as we're recording. The book is How to Marry a Millionaire Vampire (laughs) (laughs) by Carolyn Sparks. 
And this is a book that I discovered via Sarah McLean's website where she recommends romance novels that have been impactful or that she's just really loved. So I ordered it when I saw it on there because I just need something fun and light to read these days. And it's off to a great start. The Meat Cute is a vampire who has lost his fang. He had an accident with a prototype of a vampire victim made out of a sex toy. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing with vampires in this story, if he goes to sleep during the day as vampires do, that vein attached to the fang will close and it won't grow back. He can't save that fang. So he'll be a one fanged vampire. So he is scrambling to try and find an all night dentist. And he does. He finds this all night dentist who happens to be in a witness protection program because she saw some things. So she thinks, well, she doesn't just think the bad people have discovered her and they call. And so she's panicking when the vampire comes in (laughs) and she thinks he's the hitman. That's their meet cute. It's just such a funny story. It's definitely what I need right now. Some good bookish medicine. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. So what have you just read? I finished The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams. So Pip Williams is the author of The Bookbinder, which is our fourth quarter read-along. And the first novel she wrote was The Dictionary of Lost Words. And so long-time listeners know I sometimes want to read in order. (laughs) So I decided to pick this book up the other day. It was a rainy Saturday, and I got swept into the story right away. It is a fictionalized account of the creation of the Oxford English Dictionary. And Esme is the main character and her father works in the scriptorium as a lexicographer. I don't know if I'm saying the word right. They're the people who worked on the dictionary. The thing I didn't know, Chris is shaking her head, she probably knew this already, is that when the dictionary was put together, first of all, it took forever, and they were seeking volunteer input on how to define words. They wanted at least six or eight quotes from people on how a word was used before they determined how they would finish the definition of the book. So her father, Esme's father, that was one of his jobs. And she would go as a little child and sit under the table where they were working. And sometimes these slips of paper that they were writing the words and the definitions on would float off to the side of the table. And so she started to collect them and noticed that sometimes the words had to do with things that were important to women and were not deemed important enough to put into the dictionary. And then she started to just go out into her neighborhood where she lived to the market and get, quote, common words from everyday working people and started to collect them as her own dictionary of lost words. (laughs) It's a very sweet story. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the characters and Pip's writing. I really got swept up in it. The one thing that I also thought was really interesting and helpful was she has a map at the beginning of the book that shows just the neighborhood where it's taking place. So as Esme is biking around and going to different buildings, you understand it. And then there's an interview with Pip in the back And also a timeline of important dates in the creation of the dictionary 
and then also a timeline of major events, just historical events featured in the novel, because it is a work of historical fiction. I really enjoyed it. It got me getting out the Google and doing a little bit more research, which will probably be helpful as we go into reading the bookbinder. So again, it's called The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams. My first just read is actually a, a DNF, did not finish, or at least am putting it aside for now. I was kind of surprised and disappointed, but it could just be my mood. A lot going on right now. So the book in question is Starling House by Alex E. Harrow. And this is a new release. It's gotten a lot of buzz. It was on the cover of Book Page. It's one of Reese's book club picks. I started it with high hopes. I did get to about 35%, but I just noticed the last several times I picked it up, I just was picking it up because I felt like, okay, that's what I'm reading, and I just wasn't getting into it. So it's about a young woman who is a high school dropout, an orphan, who is raising her younger brother. They're living in a hotel in this forgotten town in Kentucky where there's a mine. And so you have the rich people who own the mine and then everyone else in town. There was a famous writer in the 19th century who built this mansion that is the center of the story. It's the Starlings. A lot of starling birds that fly around in such great, wonderful waves together. They play a part in this book. But, you know, I don't know if it's just because it's first person, a lot of it. I just really wasn't getting attached to any of the characters. And also there are some jumps in time, which when it's a first person thing, uh, that was a little, yeah, I don't know. So I just decided to stop reading it and put it away for another day. But I have been hearing good things about it, so don't rely on my opinion if it's one that's on your TBR or looks interesting. Maybe get it from the library. Again, that's Starling House by Alex Harrow. You know, and sometimes it's that hype thing that we've talked about where you see it everywhere and you're expecting to pick it up and yeah. get lost in it and it doesn't catch you. I know. I think it is maybe just the time because she has some really wonderful sentences and great ideas in here. And at one point the character says, Maybe that's all a good ghost story is, a way of handing out consequences to the people who never got them in real life. Ooh, ouch. Great. Like, yeah. I mean, so there are a lot of things I do like about the book, and I think it is just my mood. Yeah. I've been so desperately seeking one of those books that you just get lost in. That's just been my mood lately. I don't want it to be, I don't know. I don't even know what kind of writing that is for me, but I just want to sit down with a book and read all day. That's been my <laughs> mood. And so the Dictionary of Lost Words really scratched that itch for me. And the next book, The Golden Gate by Amy Chua, also did that for me. And it's so funny because I expected Family Lore to be my weekend read. And then I did what we book people do. And I watched a video of someone making recommendations. <laughs> and all of a sudden, lo and behold, I was scrambling to hoopla and downloading the Golden Gate, because I was told it was a page turner, and I was in the mood for that. So this is a mystery. And Amy Chua, this is her first novel. She's very well known for her nonfiction writing, particularly a book called Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, which I remember, I don't know if I read it, but I definitely saw lots of interviews with her. It was about the difference between Western parenting versus Chinese parenting. And she is a Chinese American. So it was a very controversial book when it came out, I remember. 
she is a Yale professor, I believe, of law. So she's a lawyer writing a book, which is one of my sweet spots. And The Golden Gate is about a group of three cousins who are accused of murder in the early 40s in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the murder takes place at the Claremont, which is a fancy hotel in the Berkeley Hills. The book opens with the grandmother being deposed by a lawyer. So right away, I was like, oh, settle in. I'm totally down with this story. And so those are the interstitials, which is a word Chris helped me learn about recently, that take place throughout the story. There'll be another portion of this grandmother's deposition who may just happen to be an unreliable narrator. (laughs) And so the main character is Al Sullivan, who is the detective who is called in to investigate the murder that takes place in the hotel of a man that is soon to be running for president. The time period is really interesting because there was a lot going on in the Bay Area during that time. It was after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. So one of the things that I learned, I learned so much history of the San Francisco Bay Area, including the fact that that Navy yard there started to produce more naval ships than has ever been produced in the history of the United States. And they produced them very quickly, which is amazing if you think about the size of a naval ship. And there were other really fun little facts, like they were building the Golden Gate Bridge. And the original design of the Golden Gate Bridge was supposed to have black and white stripes so as to be seen really well in the fog of San Francisco. And when one of the first pieces of steel arrived, it was coated in this orange coating that it arrived with a protective coating. And they were like, Oh, change of plans, we're going to go orange. (laughs) And we have this orange Golden Gate Bridge. So anyway, Al Sullivan is the main character. He's a detective. The Bainbridge family is composed of this grandmother and her three grandchildren who she is trying to defend via this deposition. The plot has many twists and turns, and I really enjoyed it. I ended up reading it as an ebook, and I listened to the audiobook, which is narrated by Rob Moreira. And at the end of the audiobook, there's a talkback, a conversation between the two of them, the author and the audiobook narrator, which was fun. So I enjoyed that. The one complaint I have about audiobooks is they never read the acknowledgments, which is where I usually start in a novel. So I had the ebook so I could do that. But that just bothers me. I don't know. Anyway, my only complaint, but if you're looking for a page turning mystery that does not have blood and gore, I highly recommend The Golden Gate by Amy Chua, both the audiobook and the ebook. I did enjoy them reading it hybridly that way. Nice. (laughs) Well, the other book I finished is one that you read, and we mentioned it in the last episode, but didn't go into great detail. And that's Country Place by Anne Petrie. This book came out in 1947, and it was her second novel following her blockbuster novel called The Street. So we went from the streets of Harlem in the 1940s to Country Place, which is a town on the Connecticut shoreline modeled after Old Saybrook, which is the town that Petrie grew up in and then lived most of her life in. She did live in Harlem for several years during World War II. But Country Place is so different in a lot of ways. It's a different setting. It's different characters. I think the street really focuses on the main character, and it's following her mission, Ludie Johnson is her name, 
her mission to keep her son safe and have him grow up to not become a stereotype of an African-American man and just fall into what's expected of him. And so in a country place or country place, everyone always calls it a country place or the country place, but the title is just country place. You're in this majority white community, more rural place, and it's following more of a cast of characters. The action follows Johnny and Glory. This is taking place just a couple years after the end of World War II, and Johnny is coming home from war. One of the things I love about this book is how symbolic almost everything is, the names. Mm -hmm. Johnny comes marching home again, right? Hurrah, hurrah. There's not a lot of hurrah necessarily in this town. And then his wife's name, Glory. Glory, hallelujah. Like, I mean, just think of these archetypal names yeah. of people. Mm -hmm. And then you get into the other characters who surround them, from their parents to the wealthy woman in town, the cab driver whose name is Weasel. <laughs> so um, I love this novel so much. What yeah. did you think, Emily? I did too. And um, I have to say, if you're looking for a book club book, highly recommend this. I mean, we read it for the Vintage Book Club. I mean, the hour went so quickly. When it was over, I couldn't believe it. There are several reasons why it makes a good book club read. But I think for me, the number one is Petrie doesn't just hand you answers. I mean, she makes you really think about what she's writing about and what the characters are struggling with. And some things are a little bit left for the reader to decide. And I think that always lends itself to a good book club conversation. I will say in comparing the two, the street and country place, I cared more about the characters in the street, but I thought the character development was great in country place. I just didn't care about the characters as much, which was just me as a reader, I think. It was very small town, and she did a great job drawing out the different characters that are part of a small town and how they come in to play with each other. Yeah, I thought so too. And I think the thing with the street and Ludie Johnson is like, you really root for her. Mm -hmm. You really do. You just become so attached to her and her plight. And then with the people in Country Place, it is more of a what's going to happen to them. Mm -hmm. It's interesting too, because it has a narrator who is a self-described misogynist. He hates women. Mm -hmm. And he's the local pharmacist in town. He owns the drugstore in town that sells a variety of things like, you know, magazines and chocolates and things like that. So you're getting the story through him mm -hmm. and through gossip that he has heard because everyone comes into the drugstore, you know, to get a shake or their prescription. And he hears a lot in town, but how reliable is he? Right. But you kind of forget that it's through him as a narrator. Another thing I really liked is that Although it's set in the 1940s post-World War II, Petrie incorporates the Great Hurricane of 1938 in a lot of ways that devastated New England. So there's a storm that's brewing. And that sounds, it, it can be very corny for a writer and just really shorthand or corny or trite for a writer to do that, that a storm is brewing. But in her hands, I didn't feel that way at all. No, it added just the right amount of tension to the story, I think. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, she puts a lot of realism in there, you know, things that people do when there's a big storm approaching. So it wasn't just something that she happened to mention. Yeah. I just felt like it was an orchestra and she was conducting all of these separate pieces 
And it just came together so well, I thought. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. yeah. Highly recommend both of these books, The Street and Country Place. Yeah. And so sadly, that was my last time facilitating the conversation for the Vintage Book Club. I had to let that go as I started a new job. You know how some things have to kind of give, unfortunately, so I'll miss them. And I hope to maybe visit every now and then as I can. But the Vintage Book Club will go on. They are planning to read the other two books of Petrie's that we had in mind, The Narrows, which will be discussed in April next year. And then Miss Muriel and other stories will be discussed I think in July. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So we'll let you know about that. But check out Book Club CT because Cindy, who's the owner, is going to lead the conversations going forward. And we'll put that link in the show notes as well. So Biblio Adventures. I had a couch Biblio Adventure. I watched the second season. Okay, I binged <laughs> the second season of Slow Horses on Apple TV. This is based on the book series by Mick Heron. The first book in that series is called Slough Horses, S-L-O-U-G-H. Season two is based on book two, which is called Dead Lions. It's so good. And it's also a British series. So it was only, I think, six episodes. So even though I binged it, it wasn't 20 episodes or anything. But Gary Oldham plays the main protagonist, whose name is Jackson Lamb. He's a washed up MI5 agent who leads a group of ragtag misfit agents who, of course, always do a better job than anybody else. I mean, you really start to understand the character of Jackson Lamb. He's messy, like his clothes are messy. There's always comments about how he smells. He eats a lot of food. There's a scene of him eating noodles, Chris, in this this season that I laughed so hard and I thought of you because Chris is a noodle lover. And it was like the noodles were a character in the scene. It was just <laughs> great. It was a great series of shows and I got completely swept up in it. And I will say that not to give too many spoilers, but There are some great female characters in this season and particularly playing on that. I don't know if it has a name in literature, but where they never think it would be the woman who could do anything (laughs) really. So there's a character like that that was really surprising. I hope that's not too much of a spoiler, but really loved it. So again, that's called Slow Horses. It's based on the book series by McCarran, and that's on Apple TV. And this third season is starting on December 1st, so I know where I'll be. See, I didn't even know that that was a series. I picked up Slow Horses at the Guilford Free Library book sale. just in was it September that they had the book sale. I thought, oh, that sounds really good. The whole MI5 washed up people kind of thing. I like that. And I I think I posted it on Instagram or something. And Karen Barker for Books mentioned the series. Okay. And so I'm like, okay. So it's on my stack, closest to my reading chair stack. Mm. So now did you read the books or did you just dive into the series? Okay. I dove into the series. You know, Juliet Graham sent us one of the books, a Mm. more recent one in the series, and I never got to it. But I told myself, I'm not going to read these. The series is so good. I'm enjoying it so much. But I think the books are probably fantastic. I'm sure that they build the characters. You learn a little bit more about them. Yeah. You know. Maybe or not. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> Ooh, I could get in trouble for saying that on a book podcast. <laughs> trouble. The book's always better, Chris. Yeah. No disrespect intended. <laughs> 
Well, I also had a couch biblio adventure based on a new movie, newish movie. I think this one came out last year. Um, that is a takeoff on Dracula, my beloved Bram Stoker <laughs> classic. And it's called Renfield. I have to thank listener Tanya, who recommended it to me. I'll just read this snippet from her email. She said, I saw a movie last night that Chris might like or not, knowing how much she likes Dracula and Stoker. It is Renfield, starring Nicolas Cage. It is a humorous spoof on Renfield's codependency issues with his boss. It is a gory, but more like a cartoon gory rather than realistic violence. I hope you enjoy it. Well, I did enjoy it very much. And it is gory, but it's like spoof gore. But what I loved about it is Nicolas Cage plays Dracula. And they have at the very beginning is Renfield, who is Dracula's familiar, you know, doing his bidding. As Renfield is talking about being codependent and in this codependent group, talking about his boss, you see scenes of Nicolas Cage playing Dracula, but from Bela Lugosi's movie version from 1931. So they're kind of like recreating some of those iconic scenes, which I just loved. I got a kick out of that. I thought it was really a fabulous takeoff on the Dracula story by having Renfield portrayed as this codependent person. Renfield was played by Nicholas Holt, who I'm not familiar with, but he looked familiar, you know, maybe because he's a familiar. Who knows? <laughs> and then the other main actor was Aquafina. Oh, she yeah. plays a cop and I love her. And I didn't realize she was in it. And when she popped up on the screen, I'm like, okay, I'm going to love this even more because I just love her attitude and her voice. She has that kind of gravelly voice. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. Renfield is in this codependent group. So he's getting the strength to leave his baddie. Mm -hmm. He first showed up at this codependent group to find victims for Dracula because Dracula every century or so just goes off the rail and gets himself blown up. And then it takes a while and a lot of blood to get him back up to the full power. So Renfield's out there trying to find people that are pure because the blood of impure people is disgusting to Dracula. So he thinks, okay, I'm going to go to this codependent group and I'm not going to choose the people who are at the meeting as victims, but they're victimizers oh, as wow. victim, like the people they're being codependent toward, you know, abusive type people, but that doesn't work out so well. There's also, it, it takes place in New Orleans and there is a big gang in New Orleans that's led by a woman. She's like the matriarch of it all. And they all butt heads eventually. Aquafina plays this good hearted cop whose sister is an FBI agent and they both lost their father who was a cop and a really good guy to that gang. Mm. So there's this interwovenness to the storyline. So I'll stop talking about that because it's not exactly based on a book, as far as I know, but it is inspired by Dracula. And it's a movie, right? It's a not movie, a Renfield, okay. and it's on Netflix right now. Thanks again to Tanya for recommending that. Well, I went to the movies. I went to see Killers of the Flower Moon based on the book by David Gran that the gentleman caller and I read aloud to each other as we drove back and forth to Michigan this summer. So I've talked about that on an earlier episode. The movie stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone and Robert De Niro, and it's directed by Martin Scorsese. It's three hours, so be ready when you go. The book focuses on the FBI 
And I think the subtitle of the book is Osage Indians and the Creation of the FBI or something like that. The movie focuses on the love between Molly and Ernest Burkhart, which I thought was a really brilliant turn to take. To remind people of the story, Osage Indians in the 20s had been forced onto some land that was not very habitable to discover that they were sitting on literally a pot of gold, liquid gold, oil. And they became some of the richest people in the country and had great wealth and cars and mansions, etc. And then the oil barons came in, things got messy. And a lot of the problem was that the Osage were not allowed to be in control of their own money. And they were being murdered because people were trying to get access to the headrights, permanent access to the headrights of the oil. So the movie is beautifully filmed. It focuses a lot on the Osage Nation and their culture. I did see an interview with the cast at the Cannes Film Festival, which was really interesting. And one of the things they talked about was that they did film in Oklahoma on Osage land. Members of the Osage Nation were used in the filming, you know, behind the camera. They also created all of the blankets that were worn by the cast. That part was just beautiful. It was really a beautiful movie to watch. That being said, it's a horrible story. And the film really helps you see right away the duplicitousness of Ernest Burkhart, who's Molly's husband, and then the king, who's played by Robert De Niro, and how they really were positioning themselves to take over this land. Ernest was married to Molly. They were in love in real life. But at the same time, as we know, love can be very complicated. And he was slowly trying to kill Molly and her husband, Ernest was, and also killed members of her family. So it's a period in time in our country that's really important. I'm glad that it's been given a broader audience through the making of this film. That being said, I think it's also important to note that it's still being told by a white director. And Martin Scorsese does something at the end that I don't want to ruin, but is a really interesting turn in the film that I think was his way of trying to say, I recognize that I am still a white man telling this story, Mm -hmm. which I thought was brilliant. And he's a brilliant filmmaker. So that makes sense. One thing I learned in watching that interview with the cast, which I'll put a link in the show notes, it's available on YouTube, is that Lily Gladstone, who is the heart of this movie, she plays Molly, is a member of the Blackfeet Nation and was raised in Montana. And she talks about how important it was to honor Osage people, but also recognizing that she wasn't one and what can be burdensome to feel like you are the person who is representing an entire nation. So she's really honest about the work she had to do as an actor to come into the character. The other thing is that they mentioned a book that I want to mention called A Pipe for February by Charles Redcorn. They actually mentioned it in this interview and Scorsese said that it helped influence the filming of this because this was written by a member of the Osage Nation back in 2002. It was published by University of Oklahoma Press. There's a new edition of it, I noticed, with a foreword by Martin Scorsese, which is interesting. And he said he hopes 
to actually make this into a film as well. And it's told from the perspective of an Osage writer, whereas David Grant tells the story from the perspective of a white journalist. The very last part of that book, he inserts himself as a journalist in his research and all of that. So I'd be interested to read A Pipe for February. And then our listener, Robin, on Instagram said she heard about a book called Mean Spirit by Linda Hogan that was nominated for a Pulitzer, which I've never heard of. Thank you, Robin, so much. Also told from the perspective of a member of the Osage. So lots of information. I'd love to know what people think if they're seeing the movie. It was quite epic to watch. Pillars of the Flower Moon in theaters now. Chris, do you have any upcoming jaunts? There is a big to-do happening around Willa Cather coming up in November, December. For those of you who are new listeners, I mentioned Willa Cather as much as I mentioned Dracula. I try to not do it every episode. It's going to be Willa Cather's 150th birthday in December. December 7th is her birthday. So the Cather Foundation and other organizations around the country are having celebratory events. Some of them already started. Some of them are going through December. So we'll put a link in the show notes to the Willa Cather Foundation's website where they are listing a lot of these events. New Mexico, Nebraska, Pittsburgh, some of them are online. So do check that out and celebrate Pulitzer Prize winning author's birthday. Wonderful. I'm hoping to go to Bank Square Books in Mystic next Thursday, November 9th to see Sigrid Nunez in conversation about her new book, The Vulnerables, which I'm hearing really good things about. When I lived in Yellow Springs, Ohio, she was one of the visiting authors at the Antioch Writers Workshop. And I got to hear her, I was working at a bed and breakfast at the time where she was staying and she was meeting with someone to go over their manuscript. And she was so generous and lovely. I've read some of her other books. I didn't read The Friend, which won a National Book Award, but this new one sounds really good. Anyway, long-winded way of saying I want to go see her in conversation next week. Sigrid Nunez. Oh, man, I wish I could go. Yeah, I know. My new job is getting in the way of my bookish interests. Of life. Isn't it crazy how jobs do that? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Too funny. What about upcoming reads? I have on my desk, Julia by Sandra Newman. This is a retelling of George Orwell's 1984 from the point of view of Julia, who was a female character that didn't get much notice in the original. I'm looking forward to that one myself. And then I also got in my little hands, thanks to Algonquin, a book that's coming out on January 9th, twenty. 24, which is so weird to say. (laughs) It's called Old Crimes by Jill McCorkle. And this is a group of short stories. She is a fantastic short story writer. What about you? Nice. Well, uh, immediately, I have two that are on my nightstand. Chasing Bright Medusas, A Life of Willa Cather. This is a short biography by Benjamin Taylor. And this is coming out in November. Thank you so much to the publisher, for sending us an early finished copy. It's really wonderful to have Viking is the publisher. They're going to be doing the book launch from the National Willa Cather Center in Red Cloud, Nebraska. And that is going to be streamed. Check out the link for that. Unfortunately, I didn't write the date down, but it's like mid-November. Looking forward to that. And then this is a book. Oh my gosh. I have to thank Akashic Books for sending an advanced reader copy of A Darker Shade of Noir 
New Stories of Body Horror by Women Writers. This is edited by Joyce Carol Oates. There are stories from Margaret Atwood, Tanner I've Do, a bunch of other writers. And I saw this book in catalogs, and I saw it on the emails that I get from them, and I thought, oh, body horror, I don't really know. That's not really my thing. It kind of weirds me out a little bit too much. But every time I would see it, it stuck in my craw. (laughs) (laughs) Emily and I have stories about craw. Um, (laughs) So then I got another email from the publisher, and I thought, you know, I wrote back, and I said, do you still have any review copies of that available? Because I am curious. So they sent it, and I'm really happy. And I just wanted to share a little bit from Joyce Carol Oates's introduction, talking about body horror. Consider Medusa, the quintessential emblem of female body horror. We all know who Medusa was, yes? A demonic female figure, a gorgon, with writhing venomous serpents springing from her head and a face of surpassing ugliness a bestial creature so horrific to behold that anyone who gazed upon her turned to stone. Since Medusa was a mortal woman, the, quote, hero, Perseus, succeeded in beheading her by observing her not directly but through a shield. As a favor of the goddess Athena, Perseus then used Medusa's severed head as a weapon of his own, turning enemies to stone. Less generally known is that in some variants of this legend, Medusa was originally an exceptionally beautiful young woman with particularly beautiful hair. Like many other mortal women in classical mythology, Medusa was raped by a god, in this case Neptune, king of the sea. Because the rape occurred in the temple of Athena, the goddess was outraged, and with the cruel illogic of the patriarchy, Athena, born out of the head of Zeus, with no mother, was a male cohort. She punished the rape victim not the rapist, transforming the beautiful Medusa into the horrific Gorgon with snakes springing from her head and a very ugly face. A cautionary tale, women should be beautiful and desirable, even as they will be punished for being beautiful and desirable, at least outside the protective perimeters of marriage. Mm. So I was just like, wow, okay. Equating body horror to ancient mythology, I would have never made that connection. So I'm very curious now about these stories. Again, that's A Darker Shade of Noir, New Stories of Body Horror by Women Writers, edited by Joyce Carol Oates. And do you know when it comes out? It is already out. Okay. Yeah, it came out in early September. That's why I didn't know if they would still have copies available to send out for a review, but I'm really happy that they did. So thank you so much. In the Out Now category, Class, A Memoir of Motherhood, Hunger, and Higher Education by Stephanie Land. She was the author of Made, which I know was a very popular read and became a Netflix special as well. And there was just an article in the Times about her this weekend, I think. I'll try to link to it in the show notes about her journey as an author and how people thought that she'd probably be financially sound for life based on the book being made into a Netflix series and all of that. It's not that way in publishing. So kind of an interesting read. Coming up next, enjoy our author spotlight with Sarah McLean. She's kind of a big wig in the romance genre. And we had such a good time talking with her. She came to talk about her third novel in the Hell's Bells series, Knockout. And of course, we talked to her about a whole lot more. So enjoy. Happy Happy reading. reading.
We are thrilled to talk with New York Times bestselling romance writer, advocate, and podcaster, Sarah McLean. Sarah currently has five distinct historical romance series. Hell's Bells has three books and a fourth on the way. The Bare Knuckle Bastards has three books. Scandal and Scoundrel has three books, including one with our favorite title, The Rogue Not Taken. Rules and Scoundrels has four books, Love by the Numbers, three books, and Sarah's also published three standalone novels. She's also had a short story included in the YA anthology, Generation Wonder, The New Age of Heroes. So if anyone's counting, that's 19 published novels, which have been translated into more than 25 languages. Sarah also writes for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Bustle. Brooklyn Magazine wrote that Sarah is one of the leading progressive feminist voices writing romance today. Her work takes on the topics of classism, sexism, racism, police corruption, and the normalization of sexual desire. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for counting them all up. I don't have a lot of time <laughs> counting them all up. <laughs> Are you tired you now? Five distinct series. I was like, is that true? That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> You've been busy. Well, Sarah, we have so much we want to talk to you about today, but we were talking before we logged in with you and said, let's make sure we talk to her about her newest book before we get off on all the other things. So the newest book is Knockout, and this is in the Hell's Bells series, book number three. Could you give listeners maybe the inspiration for the Hell's Bells and also what is this book Knockout about? Sure. Um, my books, over 19 of them, have always had a thread of heroines whose backs are against the wall. I really love a heroine whose back is against the wall and who has to act to change her circumstances or the circumstances of the world around her. And I think my early books were very much about changing her circumstances specifically. And now my books are really about changing the world around us because of the world that we are living in and sort of the desire to see the world shift around me and us. So Hell's Bells was born out of um, I think I would probably say a fair amount of female rage, <laughs> but, uh, but also a real love of heroines who are proactive and who see something in the world around them that seems unjust and are interested in changing them and building a community of people around them who also share those ideals. I'm always looking at historical texts and always reading nonfiction. And I actually happen to be on Twitter gosh, years ago. And a tweet went by about a real life girl gang in Victorian London called the 40 Elephants. And they were the largest shoplifting ring ever in the United Kingdom, 200 to 300 people strong, entirely peopled with women. And they, of course, did a lot of crime. But I was really fascinated by this idea when you start reading about Alice Diamond and the 40 Elephants, which lasted almost 100 years, the gang, always run by a new queen. Whenever one would retire, a new one would rise. And when you read about these brilliant, wonderful characters in history, you discover that in many cases, you know, the texts from their trials, for example, were very much about patriarchy, that they were using the way the world looks and judges and misjudges women in order to do crime 
under the radar. I got really fascinated by these women and the way that they were sort of overtly fighting a system that was naturally unjust. These are largely women who were almost entirely women who were born poor, working class, maybe even lower class than working class, and had no choice but to smash against a system that was designed to keep them oppressed. Of course, I write romance novels. So (laughs) not only do we get to smash the patriarchy in my books, we get to do it um, with powerful men alongside us. Yeah, that's totally great. And I mean, and that is kind of like smashing a stereotype about romance novels in general. We're the middle-aged cougars here. There used to be such a stereotype about romance novels, um, and certainly not that they were smashing the patriarchy. No, no. But what's fascinating is it was a real stereotype from the beginning. I mean, the the genre from the 1970s, right? The first arguably the book that we sort of all point to as like the first one of the modern romances was published in 1972. And I mean, these books have always been about women against with their backs against the wall who had no choice, but to take action against small and large oppression. Um, And we've, we see it over and over and over again in those early texts. Um, People get very distracted by the covers, um, (laughs) which is really interesting because the the covers make the texts even more subversive in a lot of ways. Right. But these books are deeply political because women's lives are political. Right. Yeah. And that's probably one reason why they've been kind of trashed because the Mm -hmm. patriarchy is intimidated. Well, and so the cornerstone of the romance novel is the happily ever after, right? That is every romance has a happily ever after, which is another reason why the books get trashed, right? I mean, the idea that sort of happily ever after is for children or derivative in some way or schlock or, you know, too emotional or, you know, unrealistic is my favorite one. Like, why shouldn't we all want that? Really? Right. Like, you should be happy. Yeah. We have one time on this, you know, earth and you should strive for joy. And I think that that's the thing. I think joy is so subversive. And when you start to think about the world around you, and I think as we age, right, one of the things that I have found as I have aged is how subversive joy is, how we are conditioned socially to believe that in some ways, like joy isn't possible in large quantities, like it is, it's fleeting and it's ephemeral. And, and those of us who choose joy are somehow selfish or self-absorbed or, you know, whatever. That's nonsense. Joy is so subversive. It is so political. It is so terrifying to, you know, patriarchy, to dominance, to oppressors. The idea that we might be happy, that we might choose happiness, pleasure, partnership, an identity that is ours and ours alone, a place in the world where we claim space and we stand in it without shrinking ourselves or quieting ourselves or choosing something that might make us less than. The choice to make ourselves not even more than, but just make ourselves ourselves is joyful and powerful and subversive and romance celebrates that. That is the arc of every character who gets a happily ever after. Oh, gosh, so well said. Yes. Yeah, yeah, total mic drop. <laughs> so, so in Hell's Bells, in this third book, Knockout, Imogen likes to blow shit up. Yeah, she does. <laughs> I love that about her. And she's been doing that, you know, this series, as we said, is three books strong. So she's been doing that along the way. Is there something about everything you just said about seeking joy and smashing the patriarchy? 
when you put these four characters, because there's four main vigilantes in this book, mm-hmm. do you feel like, I'm not quite sure how to ask this question, like that we as women, you know, historically have teamed up in order to do it. How did you choose these four, I guess, to band yeah. together and do that? That's a great question. I mean, because there are two answers, right? There's the personal answer, which is, yes, I believe in women and marginalized people coming together, working together, standing together, right? We are all pulling on a thread of a very large fabric of justice, and we cannot unravel the whole fabric as individuals. We have to unravel the whole fabric by each pulling on our own thread, and that means we have to work together. And I think that my own personal relationships in the world, my, I think, love Romance is the story of feelings. It's the, it's the genre of love. It's the genre of hope and happiness and joy. And those things are not specific to one partnership. They are not specific to romantic love. They are specific to a broad fabric of love. And then there is the storytelling piece, right? Which is this is a gang of people. Each one is going to get her story and they have to be able to knit together as really fun storytelling, right? The story has to be compelling. You have to want to read not only this book, but every other book in the series. So when I put the gang together, um, you all are, are old enough to remember a show called The A-Team, <laughs> <laughs> which was also a movie called The A-Team, and also many other heist movies, The Italian Job and The Oceans movies and, you know, Ghostbusters and all these sort of different throw a stone in film and television and you you can hit a heist movie where there is a team working together and everybody has a particular set of skills. And when you combine them, much more impressive work can be done. So that is at its core how the Hell's Bells came to be is I was like, okay, there are four. If it's a four book series, there will be four of them. One of them will obviously be the one with the plan. And then who else is there, right? Like there's the scientist or the explosives expert, you know, who is Imogen, the heroine of Knockout. There's the femme fatale, who is Cecily, the heroine of Bombshell, which is the first book in the series. And then there's the thief who is also can chameleon in and out of rooms and people don't even notice her. And that's Adelaide, who is the heroine of Heartbreaker. And that's how the Hellspells came to be. I sort of knew instinctively that I would have to create a team where everyone who sat down with these books would be able to say, oh, I think I might be like, I'm a Cecily or I'm a Heartbreak. I'm an Adelaide or I'm an Imogen. Um, Imogen's for sure the most fun. She was maybe the most difficult to give her own book to, but she was the most fun uh, to write. Interesting. (laughs) So how many books are you imagining in this series? Well, I mean, there is one more. It is Duchess's book, uh, the one who brought the whole group together. But the bells are far reaching and there are many, many, many characters in this, in the world who are strong, um, women who have something to say about the world that they, they live in. And so as far as I'm concerned, this series, I'm not ready to say goodbye to them yet. I may be by the time I'm finished writing Duchess's book. <laughs> right now I'm not. So it really is readers, it's readers' choice. You know, if readers come for the books and they want more, maybe I can convince my publisher to write some, oh, to right let on. them write, write you, let me write a few more. You heard it here. <laughs> well, I think the Duchess is the most mysterious. So I'm curious what this fourth book is going to be. Sure. Well, she's the queen, right? So it's, I mean, she's not the actual queen. That would be a real surprise. Um, <laughs> but, but she is, she has had a plan from the beginning. And these books are getting, you know, more and more 
interesting to me as a writer because the enemy in each book gets bigger and bigger mm. and more and more complex, right? The enemy in, in Knockout is Scotland Yard, which is policing. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, interesting because they take place not in this current age, but there's plenty yeah. of comparison, right? Yeah. Well, there is a sort of shock, right? When you are writing historical novels or historical fiction and you realize you're, it's not that different. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the politics of then and the politics are n- of now are not that different. But there is a real joy to being able to write historical because while the politics are not that different, you can wrap the story up in a real sense, a sort of cloak of fantasy where I can blow up a jail cell, for example, in <laughs> Scotland Yard and everybody can be safe and get away with it. Whereas obviously that's more complex when you're writing a, a contemporary. So I feel like I have a lot more reign than people who write contemporary novels do. Mm, yeah. Well, can you talk a little bit about how you came to writing and specifically romance and then also why you chose historical as your subgenre? Yeah. Well, I have been reading romance since I was probably too young to be reading romance. <laughs> um, I was 10 or 11. I don't remember exactly when. I remember the book, of course, but I was 10 or 11 years old when I read my first romance. And it was so magical and fantastical. It was a historical set in medieval England. And it was so lush and romantic and full of feelings. And when you are a preteen, just really trying to, I now have a preteen who lives in my house with me. And uh, she really, I can see myself in her in a lot of ways because like, boy, does she like to feel a feeling at a four and then like figure out how she can dial that right up to an 11. (laughs) And I was like, oh, romance. That's why romance really (laughs) lands so well for me uh, or did when I was her age. I mean, I was a little bit older, but And so I think historical, like I said, it has that sort of, it lives in that realm of fantasy. It feels so lush. It feels so magical. The dresses are so big. The characters are so, you know, larger than life. And I fell into it. I mean, I was a kid who um, I was a little bit weird and very nerdy and also had been going through some family stuff. And historical romance was really there for me in the way that books are there for children. You know, we talk so much now about the need for kids to have access to books that represent them and kids to have access to books about like all the different issues that the sticky, difficult, challenging issues that they face every day and how book banning is terrible. And the reason why is so that we can is because those of us who are readers know this, like books find you when when you need them. Um, and romance found me when I needed it. I really believe that. And in large part because of those heroines that I was talking about before. So when I finally decided I was going to write, um, I never thought of myself. I always like dabble, but I never thought that's a job people can have. I mean, this is not a normal, this is a ridiculous job. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I just, I, it never occurred to me that this was a job I could have. Um, but when I finally did write my first book, which was on a dare, I realized like, oh, that I can do this. Like, This is a world that I, I could actually live in. And so it was natural that I would write historicals because it felt like going home in a lot of ways. Mm, yeah. So All right. So how old were you when that dare came? And are you still friends with that person? <laughs> <laughs> I am still friends with that person. She is not a writer. She is 
actually, she does work in publishing though. Um, I was 25 and um, Twilight had just come out. And I was also working in publishing, although, you know, in a sort of ancillary role. And when you're 20 years old and you live in New York City and you work in publishing, all your friends also work in publishing. And then we were all out drinking and we were talking about Twilight. And I said something like, (laughs) well, I mean, how hard could it be? I could write that. (laughs) And uh, the arrogance of a 25-year-old. And my friend looked at me and she was like, well, I dare you. And I went home and I had had like just enough to drink uh, that I walked into my tiny little apartment and I wrote what would be the first chapter of the season, which was my first book. Um, And of course, it was nothing like Twilight. It was a historical romance, but, you know, wrapped up in YA. I have had tremendous luck in publishing. And because as much as we say like, oh, it takes good writing and it takes skill and it takes talent. I mean, it does take all of that stuff, but it's 80% luck. Mm, The right person picking up your manuscript at the exact right time and being in the right mood on the right day where the sun is, you know, the light is refracted <laughs> in the perfect way. And then and what they're know, in the mood to publish deal. and, you know, exactly. That, yeah. One of the things you touched on is about that books are kind of a mirror and we can read yeah. things at the time we need them. And talking about that, I wanted to talk about the cover. Oh yeah. And the covers so of, much. yeah, of all of these. You can help. tell it's the <laughs> only one I have in my office. <laughs> She's got a, for listeners, she has a huge poster of the cover of Knockout. <laughs> and one of the things that I think is so interesting about all three of these books is that the back cover has mm-hmm. the woman climbing the on top of the man. Yeah. Is that what it's called? The clinch. Mm-hmm. But the front is really just the heroine. And this one, you know, she's full bodied and beautiful and sassy looking and, can you just talk about it? The cover of this yeah. book? Did you have anything well, to do with it? That woman is a model. Her name is Sarah Goldstein. And I chose her. I selected her myself, oh, wow. which is, there comes a point in your career where you're lucky enough to be able to select your own model. And she is so gorgeous. And I saw her photograph and I was like, that's Imogen. She, that's her. She's, I, we have to get her. Luckily, she's nearby to me in in new york city and uh the covers are shot here in new york city so i also get to go to the cover shoots because i live here also which is again very lucky you know so much of it is luck she is plus size so is the character in the book um and it was important to me that the model on the cover reflect the character in the book um so i bought a dress for her because the photographer or the designer for the cover shoot was like we don't have a dress that will fit her Mm. and i was like i will bring a dress you know, they were like, well, we could put something else on her and she could just have an open back. Like, we just won't shoot her from the back. And I was like, no, I want her to feel gorgeous. I want her to feel comfortable. Like, also, everybody's 2023. Like, let's dress curvy women. Uh, and I went and we took this photo and I told her, you're there for a whole hour. And the the guy is there, too. His name is Thomas Castellano. And uh, Thomas has been on, on a few of my books. And so I, I've known him for a while. And he knows, like, he just steps. He's like a prop he just like waits in the wings until it's time for him to like come and lay down and you know he's literally a prop so the uh i met sarah and she's so charming and she's so funny and she has this like electric smile and i said okay so your character is an explosives expert in 1840s and she is gonna go up against the institution of policing but also she's gonna fall in love with like this stern detective who 
is super duper sexy and can't get enough of her. And she was like, I got it. And I was like, okay, cool. And that was the first photograph. Wow. Like it was, wow. she like sat down, took that picture. And I was like, we have That's it. Amazing. Yeah. And here's, um, the and there are about, the you know, <laughs> 200 other photographs wow. uh, of, of Sarah amazing. that are also gorgeous, but that's, I mean, literally the first one. So a follow-up question on that. We were at the Yale Romance oh, Workshop. Yeah. 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 And people alluded to the fact that there's a lot of change happening in the world of romance mm-hmm. covers, but I don't feel like I ever got the answer to what the changes are. Is this an example? I would say this is obviously a shift in the right direction for covers with people on them. My very first adult romance, Nine Rules to Break When Romancing a Rake, is also about a plus-size heroine. And um, I did not have any control over that cover. When I got it, I got the first version of the cover. She was, I mean, she was a a model, like a size two, maybe. Mm. And I was like, she does not look like the character at all. And it went back to art and then it came back to me and she just had enormous breasts in the Mm. second version, which is actually the version that's on the original cover of Nine Rules because I didn't have control at that point, right? I mean, you just at that time, 14 years ago, like you didn't put larger bodies on romance covers, even if at the time, very few people were writing larger bodies in the books too. But I mean, you know, the world changes, thankfully. I think representation in romance has really struggled. The books themselves, first of all, the content of the books has evolved over the last, I would say, decade to include much more representation, right? There are many, many more people of color, BIPOC authors writing BIPOC characters, and that is incredibly important. There are more queer writers writing queer characters. There are more larger sized people writing larger sized characters. And these are all really valuable shifts. The covers have changed, have evolved from this kind of human space to a more illustrated structure in many ways, because we think, or at least I think as somebody who's like studied the genre for as long as I have, I think in many ways that is because representation in modeling is not there, right? There are many, many fewer available stock photos, for example, of romance characters or characters who could be used on a romance novel who are of color, who are queer, who are curvy, who are whatever. And so illustration has become really popular. And I also think illustration has... Uh, brought the genre to a wider audience of people, people who maybe were embarrassed to read a book with a clinch on it, for example, before um, now don't have to, they don't have to deal with that. And, um, you know, there are good and bad things about all of those things. Yeah. I'm kind of new to reading romance in some yeah. ways. I mean, the first one I read was back in like 2010. Uh, but as a queer person, you know, so much of it in the past had been really heteronormative. Yeah. But so recently I've read two romances that were illustrated covers yeah the first was cleat cute meryl wilsner wilsner mm-hmm. right and then the second one was my roommate is a vampire okay levine is the author's yeah. name on that and they're so they're both illustrated and to me like i i saw them as young adults because of yeah. the illustration but like both of them have some pretty you know intense sex scenes yeah so i'm just so curious about covers these days and how they are changing and, and you are, are not alone yeah we are all like, curious about covers are the, these are days. the you know right people i say that in quotation marks are the right people picking up the right books yeah i mean i 
worry less about age. I'll be honest. And I think that's because of my own experience starting to read romance when I was so young. I think romance can in many ways like set a a person up to think about healthy relationships. I also am like fairly sex positive in my life. Like I said, I have a preteen and we don't hide that stuff from her. And I think, you know, acknowledging that young people are going to think about sex. They're having like pants feelings. It's not going to keep them from learning about it. And I'd rather have my daughter read a romance novel than say like search on the internet, oh, right? right? Yeah, for, for sure. Yeah. Answers to her questions. Yeah. That said, I do think that there is something very juvenile about these covers. Um, I think there is something that uh, worries me as a grown person in the world about the way that we are infantilizing, mm. that the covers can infantilize the stories. I don't know that it serves the genre or the readers in the best possible way. And I should say all this, I mean, recognizing that there are many people who read and who are very happy with illustrated covers and don't like humans on the covers. Mm -hmm. It is less for me about put the clinch back on and more for me about questions about cartoons as being the way that we jacket a billion-dollar industry that is largely for women. And it is largely for, I mean, it is obviously Roman. The romance pool, it gets larger and larger every day. And there are men who read them and and, and non-binary people who, who read them. And everyone is welcome in the romance pool. But the reality is the majority of romance readers are women. And I have questions about jacketing the books in such a... um juvenile way per mm -hmm. uh, at least perceived to be juvenile yeah no that's great i i really appreciate your thoughts on that because we're very sex positive here on the book cougars but um you know i just wonder about who will gravitate toward that book yeah i don't know that i would have picked them up if i hadn't have read about them first i mean i don't know the answer right yeah. this is above my pay grade um <laughs> but what i will say is that commercial fiction right like think about taylor jenkins reed or I don't know, Lee Child or, you know, any number, actually literally any number of popular male authors, right? Who, you know, every year put out a book, Stephen King, John Irving, et cetera, right? They seem to be able to come up with cover designs for those books mm -hmm. that are not clip art or, mm -hmm. you know, cartoon. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know, they sell, right? right. So, yeah. and I yeah. do think that there is something to be said for, they are very appealing in a lot of ways for a young audience. Like, I think that it is not an accident that they appeal to a young, that you read them as young or that I question how young they feel and what that means, right? Through a lens of the society that we live in. I think publishers are very smart and they know that readers, they leave at the end of their life and you have to build them at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think YA romance, YA is, it, it's really fascinating to me because it feels like YA is really being elided into young characters in romance novels right now. Mm. I feel like there's a big, big rise of characters in their early 20s in romance. Mm. Yes, yeah. And those were in their 20s, these, well, except for the vampire who was like, I think, 400 years yeah. old. Um, <laughs> exactly. The, the other characters are in their 20s, yeah. Right. I have a degree in education, and when you think about education, you know, children read aspirationally, and what that means is, you know, they read older than them. Like, my daughter, who is 10, is reading up mm -hmm. now. So she's reading books. She wants to read books about teenagers. Right. And so it makes sense that when you're in the 10th grade or whatever, you want to read books about kids in college. Right. And so now it, it is, I mean, it's complex, right? Mm -hmm. It's especially complex in a culture that is 
has this sort of bedrock puritanical right. sense, right? That sex yeah. is inherently a problem in a way that violence is not. Right. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. tricky. That's yeah. a big one. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, speaking of sex, can we ask about your writing? With the Hell's Bells series, there's some action, yeah. both sexual and, you know, things blowing up and fight <laughs> scenes and things like yeah. that. And as I was reading, I was wondering, is it, more fun to write a fight scene, more fun to write a sex scene. Is it harder to write one than the other? Yes, it is more fun to write action scenes than it is for me personally. It's more fun to write action than it is to write sex. Um, and that is because it is more difficult for me to write sex than it is to write action. Sex scenes slow me down. When I write an action scene, I write almost the pace of the, of the action itself, right? Like I, I, when I'm in the midst of like a real face punching kind of bar brawl, it just moves really fast. Those scenes write very quickly for me. But in the context of a romance novel, right, you often get to the a sex scene and then what might have taken, you know, you might have gone a full week in a chapter or you might go an hour in a chapter with a fight in it, but you might end up going literally like 15 minutes in a chapter with a sex scene because you might go several chapters long, right? And so the text slows down because sex scenes are obviously like driven so much by feeling, by emotion, by a constant interplay of consent, making sure that there's a lot of character work happening in sex scenes. I want my sex scenes to be integral to plot and to character. So it could take me, while it might take me a day to write a fight scene, it could take me a week to write a sex scene, a full sex scene. And that's because I'm doing a lot of character work in those scenes. Um, by the end of a sex scene, things have shifted. Like the sex itself has often made everything worse. It's often made people sort of rethink everything that they understand to be true. And those kinds of changes take a lot of care in the writing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Great. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Learning so much about the genre. It's really yes. fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I didn't even know what an HEA was until I went to that workshop. I'm like, what's an HEA? Oh. <laughs> Happily ever after. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of lingo in the romance genre. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it just adds a lot of clarity for readers. If it's a love story, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a romance, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes people pick up a book that's called a love story. And it's tragic. Yeah. And that's not what they were wanting. So to know that a romance will always have a happy ending, I think is, right. is there's really a lot of safety a, in it too, right? Yeah. For a reader. Yeah. 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 I totally get that. Yes. Your podcast that you co host is fantastic, Faded Maze. Thank you. I'm currently listening to the episode with Nahali Singh. Nalini Singh. Nalini Singh. Yeah. Who was, was the first romance I read back in 2010. Oh, really? Angel's Blood. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, I worked at a bookstore and one of my coworkers was a romance expert. And she knew that, you know, I like paranormal stuff. So she's like, start with this one. So yeah. it's, it's really great to, to listen to her story of how she came to writing and to have this fantastic yeah. career. Nalini's a great first for somebody who isn't sure about romance too, because her world building is so particular. It's so on point. Yeah, so Nalini is our most recent trailblazer episode. I host this podcast with my friend Jen Prokop, who is a romance critic. We've been doing it for six years. And a few years ago, we decided that one of the challenges with romance is that the world doesn't take it very seriously. And so there is no oral history of the genre. And it is a genre that we can really sort of touch, you know, the beginnings of. The modern genre really began in the 70s. And so we decided we would start 
trying to interview as many of the the voices that we could find from the beginning to talk about just like what it was like to start this genre and to build the house. So that's one of the episodes we do. But usually most weeks we do just an episode about a trope in romance um, where we talk about something that that's common in romance or, you know, mostly common in romance. And we recommend the books that we think that we do it, do it best. Uh, we deconstruct the trope, try and talk about why it scratches the itch that it scratches. And then we do do some read-alongs. We do about 12 read-alongs a year now. Mm. Uh, and that is every Wednesday. It's called Theta Mates. And if you have never read a romance novel, but you'd like to take a, like to think about it, you can head over there and check out, you know, all the different topics that we talk about and uh, pick the episode that you think might be the most fun. Yeah. yeah. So we have um, one final question. We so appreciate your time with us today. It's been fabulous. We really love the recommendations page that you have on your website of yeah. other romances to read. We know that you're a huge advocate for the genre. So we just would like to ask you about that recommendations page. How do you add a book to that? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, that recommendations page needs to be updated. There are about 250 books on that page. I did not start out at 250 books. A million years ago on Twitter, there was this thing where people were saying, you know, one like for one fact about, you know, me or one like or for whatever, for something that they were knowledgeable about, they would help or, you know, make a recommendation. And I was like, wait, I can do this for romance novels. Like, this is it's my only skill. <laughs> and, so, and I had, you know, it was, I don't know, 65 likes or something. So I named 65 books. So that's how that came to be because, you know, social media, everything is ephemeral. And then after that, I started just anytime I read a book. And I mean, I read a lot of romance novels. Anytime I read one that I thought was really great, I'd throw it on that list because I want romance to be judged by its best work. Mm. And I think... Um, Julia Quinn, who wrote Bridgerton, likes to say that all the other genres are judged on their best work and romance is judged on its worst. Mm -hmm. And I think there is truth to that statement. And I want people to, when they come to romance, for them to say, it's for them to see, one, how vast the genre is, how complex it is, how there is space for everyone here, that there is a story, no matter what your representation, no matter what your lived experience, no matter what your job or your kink or your, you know, whatever, we've got a book for you. And then on top of it, that those books are bangers. They're great. They're really yeah. fun reads. You tear through them. You can't put them down. Whatever your pleasure is, we've got room for you here in romance. And so that's what that is. And I, I'm very proud of that list because I think it does represent a real breadth of the genre, though I'm sure there are things that are missing. And yeah, I'm always so happy that it's the page on my website that is most visited. When I go to events and I, um, I have these cards and I change the books every year so that people can see, here are a bunch of books I really like, and then the link to the page. But I'm glad it's helpful to you, too. Oh, yeah. That's I've great. already ordered one. <laughs> great. <laughs> oh, that's great, Sarah. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was so great. Thanks for talking about romance. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media, Goodreads, or email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. 
If you'd like to help support our podcast, please tell others about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and consider becoming a patron. Even a dollar a month is a big help. Learn more about that on our website, bookcougars.com, where you'll find the show notes for this and all of our past episodes. Thanks, everybody. This episode was edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.